This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Mila Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over. And this book, Hungry Ghosts, technically the U.S. debut of Kevin Jared Hussein, but certainly not his first novel. And we will get into that a bit. But Hungry Ghosts, set in Trinidad in the 1940s, just after World War two and this novel it's gothic it's great the characters are amazing it is all of the legacy of colonialism in one novel hillary mantel's a fan or was a fan i should say bernadine evaristo is a fan i mean lots of folks saying lots of very nice things about this novel but kevin i'm going to ask you to introduce yourself and tell folks a tiny bit more about hungry ghosts before we get started with this conversation Sure, and thank you for having me. So, um, hi everyone, my name is Kevin Jared Hussein. I'm a writer from Trinidad and Tobago. I'm actually based in Trinidad and Tobago, uh, born here, educated here, the, the entire works. So for me to be, um, I guess, published widely in the US and UK is, is I guess, a kind of novel thing, <laughs> no pun intended. Yeah, so I've been writing since I was a teenager and most of my stuff has been kind of kind of dark and, and gothic and this is actually my first foray into what would be I guess historical fiction and research and things like that. Hungry Ghost is a story that's based in 1940s Trinidad and Tobago, a time that not even a lot of Trinidadians and Tobagonians know about. So I had to do a lot of research to, to sort of build this world. But the, the premise of it is basically there's this wealthy landowner and his name is Dalton Chango. He has a young wife, Mali Chango. And there's not much that we know about either of them. Both of their pasts are, are sort of mysteries and Mali thinks that he is involved in criminal activity. Well, one day he, he goes missing and all of a sudden, now she's getting ransom notes. She's getting prowlers around the estate. So on the flip side of this, uh, for all this wealth and affluence, there's the there's a sugarcane estate bank. And this is where former indentured workers would, would live. And it is actually a multi-family home. And it is pretty much the opposite of the Chango estate. It is rat-infested. It's, it's, it floods a lot. It leaks. Um, it's basically plagued with with disease and malady. And within those barracks lives the Saruk family. And this is the father, Hans Raj, or Hans, the mother, Shweta, and the son, Krishna. And there are five families living in, in this barrack. So it's very cramped in there. So Hans works for the Chango estate. He is sort of like a farm hand, handyman there. There's also a sense of attraction between him and Mali, although he is, he is married and has a family. So one day, Mali um, proposes that he stays there at the, at the estate and that he would, he would serve to protect her, but he would be away from his family. The exchange for this is, of course, money. And the money is sort of the device here that would be used to, to move that family out of the barrack. But suddenly, we don't know if 
he's going to stay in the estate or if he's going to actually want to go back to his family. And that is sort of the primary plot line in there, but there's also, you know, there's subplots in there, but that's basically the primary stuff. Yeah, we're going to let readers discover the subplots because there's a lot yeah. of really rich material here. And these sort of main characters, Marley and Hans and Shweta and Krishna, I sort of want to just focus on them because everything, they're, they're the sun of this whole story. They are the, the center. They are, everything happens in and around them in the context of them. And um, they're great, great characters. And, you know, I was noodling around doing some homework before we sat down. And part of this story came out of conversations you had with your grandfather. You yourself didn't really quite have a grasp on what Trinidad looked like back in the 40s. And your grandfather said, oh, no, no, wait, let me tell, let me tell you. So again, this isn't necessarily based on personal experience, but you did have sort of that perspective that not everyone gets. Can we talk about your grandfather for a second and how all of that came about and how that informed this really spectacular world you've created? Sure. So my grandfather, he likes to talk. Mm -hmm. But when you ask him for details, he's very skeptical. He just likes to talk on his, you know, he likes to talk on his own terms. <laughs> so when um, I was commissioned to write an article about Trinidad and basically anything about Trinidad. And I, I've been remembering since my childhood, he's been, you know, talking about the old days and things like that. But a lot of this stuff would be vague and perhaps a bit strange and details were not filled out. So I said, well, um, I would like to know the details to see if I could structure some kind of parallel between, I guess, modern Trinidad and 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 back then. Is exactly stuff that you is I guess you wouldn't really learn it in schools. Yeah, you learn um, you learn dates and you may learn like, like the types of food or or, or, or instruments in your heart, but not really these details. As I spoke to him, you know, they got they got quite ugly, but he would kind of put a flourish or a light on it, and. Uh, you know, I was just there with my notepad scribbling down. And this was really for like a nonfiction article. But when he was speaking, it, it, a lot of it seemed like fiction. And at, at the time, I, I thought he was making stuff up. Right. <laughs> and, um, but luckily, I had a, a, a friend who was a historian. And he kind of helped me piece things together. And he was kind of like a walking encyclopedia of these things. And a, a lot of this is... You only find it out through talking to people. Um, not not much of it is is written. If if it is written, you'd have to go into archives or you have to dig up in, in in very rarely found history textbooks. I just thought it would it was a very very interesting setting and it was almost a challenge. I set upon myself to write a story in in, in that time because mostly what I've done is young adult literature. And I wanted to have my kind of big, broad, epic, adult literary saga thing. And that was just something at the time, not really, I didn't even think it would be published or anything. I just wanted to do it. Yeah, so so he he was he helped me out with, with the details. And I just, instead of asking him like um about systems and so on, I was like, well, what did things smell like? What did what did how, what, what did you hear? What was like the daily? What was like daily annoyances that you had? And I used that to kind of build the daily lives of, of these families in the barrack. 
One of the things I really appreciate about your novel is the way you sort of set up the fact that the Americans have come in, they've put in a military base, and that's displaced an entire community. And that sets off a piece of the story. But that's, I mean, you are so firmly grounded in the community. We're not seeing sort of how the Brits respond or how the Americans respond. It's literally the community. And, you know, there are some folks who are making what they think are good decisions because they don't have a lot of options. One, because when you're poor, you don't have a lot of options. But also the way the community doesn't always support itself in colonial situations. And you come through it sort of sideways. And it's not necessarily a story we always see coming out of the Caribbean. There's plenty of literature sort of in the conflict between whatever the colonial power may be and then the actual community. And you're just so centered and grounded in who these people are and their hopes and their dreams. And some of them are great. And some of them you're just like, oh, oh, that person did. Oh, I mean, they're I have to say, there are moments where Marley, like, you have to congratulate her for being able to do what she's done, and you have to give her some credit for being who she is. Can we talk about the characters for a second? I mean, we've got this basic idea, you talking to your grandfather, you being part of Trinidad, Trinidad being part of you, but this cast, this cast of characters is so good. Where did you start? Sure. So, I'll actually go back to something that you mentioned and you said mm -hmm. this community doesn't support each other and it was actually something that some elders told me about in um the village i grew up in and it, it, this this was kind of the, the i guess the the idea that i had for some of these characters when forming them so they were talking about schools back then and most of these schools were missionary schools which mean they're you know they're run by the british or Canadians or um sometimes dutch and to attend those schools you would you know usually have to convert to christianity the alternative was to be educated at home or what people would call a cow shed and when colonialism was ending and let's say that um you know the europeans moved out we were kind of left with each other. So people, the, the the community would show, I guess, a kind of fearful respect to the the white teachers. So when they left, we were left with, um, you know, Indian and black teachers. And there was absolutely no respect there. So what 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 had to happen there was those locals who became teachers, they had to dress up like the colonial, the colonialists. And, and they had to like put on suits, and this is like the blazing Caribbean sun, right? They had to kind of speak with this kind of accent, and it's almost like, oh, we, we didn't really escape. We kind of just, we are emulating it now to continue to get this kind of respect or survival, and that became like the kind of game at the time. And Mali, Mali was the first character who, yeah. who came in the story from that <laughs> okay. very idea, where her entire personality in a way is a performance yeah yeah and in a very long time she's left to her own devices where the performance is what will have to make her like survive all of the, these things yeah and I thought that was like an interesting idea and so it started with her and everyone else branched out 
from from Mali. I wanted this this idea, and I, I believe American audiences can relate to this. That no one in this cast believes that they have a home. They have houses, but they don't have homes. They were born into this country. They were born into these places, but they don't feel like they are home. Mali lives in a huge mansion. It doesn't feel like a home. Same thing with Hans and Shweta and Krishna. Well, not so much Krishna, but Hans and Shweta. They live in a barrack. They, it is a shelter, a very poor one, but it is not mm-hmm. a home to them. They always figure it as temporary. And that is, I guess, the idea where these, these characters sprung from. And that's kind of like what I kept in mind when writing them. This this is a this is a house I'm living. This is not a home. I'm eventually going to end up in a home, and I'm going to do anything I could to end up in the place I I want to be. And that was what formed, as I said, the ideology of the entire cast of characters. Part of that too is the conflict between Hans and. Krishna. There are a couple of different moments where they're down in town and Hans is not treated well by the shopkeeper. And this is not a white shopkeeper. This is a member of his community. But because Hans is Hindu, he's just treated very poorly by the shopkeeper. And Krishna gets very mad at his father. And he's just like, why won't you say something? That guy's a jerk. Why won't you say something? Why won't you do something? And Hans is part of that whole performative, like, I just want to go along and get along, and I just want people to treat me like a person, which is not happening for him. And seeing Krishna, who's, he's what, 13? Yeah. As the story's going on. So he's on that cusp of, you know, sort of adolescence. He's not a little kid anymore, and he sees what his dad's doing, and he's really not having it. And so already we're on two sides of a colonial world, right? Because here's Hans, who still doesn't quite know how to let go of that whole, you know, if I act properly, people will treat me. No, civility has never helped anyone. Like, it's just not. And Krishna gets it. Krishna sees right through it. And here's Marley also holding on to what she believes is the right thing to do and the right image and everything else. And you're just kind of like, hmm, lady. But capturing Trinidad, not just in the 40s, capturing Trinidad, because I think there are a lot of folks who don't quite understand how small this place is. I mean, Trinidad is not a huge island. Can we talk about current population and can we just give people an idea of what it's like now? Sure. So Trinidad is, uh, Trinidad and Tobago is an island nation. very close to South America, um, is directly east of Venezuela, and is the southernmost Caribbean island. Right now, there's about 1.6 million that live here. Back then, it would have been a lot less. As I, even though it's like a very small rock in the ocean, there's a, a vast amount of history here. Yeah. And a, a lot of stories that actually spring out from here. I, I'm actually quite surprised every time I come across something like this. Okay. Yeah, and a lot of that, a lot of it, as I said, is is you get from kind of piecing it together from from talking to people, and this this one in particular, um, especially with the American Navy that that was was stationed here. There's, there's a highway here that's actually not a lot of people know why the highway is named this. It's 
or the Churchill Roosevelt Highway is because, you know, there's, there's the British and the Americans. And we kind of take it for granted that is named that. There's a major highway and it was really just meant to be used for the American Navy so they can transport um, arms between two bases. And uh, nobody else was allowed to use it. So th there's like stuff like that in this country where you don't really learn about unless you were to like kind of prod around. Why, why is it called that? Why is it named after Churchill and, and, and Roosevelt? And not a lot of people ask, well, when they, were, when they came here, did anybody have to move out? And someone at the time of writing, when I was planning the book, had written an article about a family that had moved out. And that they had, you know, at, at gunpoint, everybody had to flee their homes and occupy these um, kind of tenements. You don't really hear about that. You know, otherwise, you just hear these stories popping up. So that's, that's kind of like what Trinidad is. So even though like Trinidad is not, let's say the history is not really well known to, to outside, it's not really well known to a lot of Trinidadians as well. It's so, so interesting to me. Can we talk about, though, some of the Caribbean writers who may have influenced you? I mean, I know you draw your influences from lots of different places. I mean, you've cited Cormac McCarthy and Stephen mm -hmm. King, but I want to sort of stay focused on the Caribbean for just a second because, I mean, I love Jean Rees. I love Edwige Dandekat. I love Jamaica Kincaid and Marlon James. I mean, there's so much really exciting work that has come out of writers either based in the Caribbean or with Caribbean backgrounds. And I'm just wondering how that influenced you as you were developing, because you mentioned earlier that your earlier books are very different from Hungry yeah. Ghosts. I grew up mainly reading um, American and British mm -hmm. literature. And mostly because you, I, I didn't get to study literature in, in high school because my school didn't offer it. And you really only got I'll say like access to those books, at least to, you, you would think of them as academic, not really to, to read for fun. And it's only later on, um, maybe my early 20s is when I was trying to put my writing in settings of, of Trinidad. Because a lot of times I, I wrote about in, in America and I never lived in America. So they got very weird. Or, or like unnamed suburb or city, you know, and I really wanted to set something in the island. So I had to, you know, you have to, you have to read in order to write these things. Yeah. And I started off with, um, I mean, with, with some BS Nightfall. I mean, he's not the best role right. model, but, but he has, he's he has a starting point. point. He is a starting yeah, he's point. He's a good starting point. So he has a uh, Miguel Street and a house from Mr. Bisfast and things like that. A few years later, I came across a book that was um, not well known at all called No Pain Like This Body. And mm -hmm. this was by a writer named Harold Saniladu. And his book actually got recently re-released, I think, by Penguin. And he wrote a, a story about this um, Barak family, you know, this, 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 this East Indian family, very ancient beliefs. It was, you know, during almost, it was set before the time of Hungry Ghost. It was like, I think the 1920s or so. Right. Mm -hmm. And there was a kind of, there, there, was a, there was a kind of darkness, a kind of horror-esque darkness that he had mm -hmm. in his writing that I didn't really see in, in Caribbean literature. And that really, really grasped me. Mm -hmm. And from there, I, I knew I wanted to write something like that. And that was what, 
I guess was my biggest influence. I read a lot of Caribbean poetry. Um, I read, um, there's this Barbadian poet called Kamal Braffitt, or Brathwaite, it, it, people pronounce it differently. Right. His poetry has a kind of a, a, a kind of rhythm to it, a kind of gothic kind of image imagery, and very like like darkly religious imagery mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. I think has seeped or osmosed into some of my my writing. So really, the influences a blend of yeah. I would say um, British, American, Caribbean, and and some Japanese literature. Oh. Who among the Japanese do you like the most? Mishima. Yukio uh, Mishima. Yeah, is like a, of course. A big, a big one for me. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, it's always yeah. fun because, you know, Tanazaki, when you look yeah. at, like, the Sisters Makioka and then, like, some of the short stories, <laughs> dude has range. Yeah. Dude has range. And it's, it, it's kind of fun to think about the fact that that can spread around, you know, the globe yeah. kind of thing. I mean, it really does entertain me to know. And because one of the things I was talking to you about before we started taping was the book's title, Hungry Ghosts. And in Asia, this is a really common idea that, you know, an unsettled ghost is a hungry, like you see the imagery of the distended bellies. And there are all sorts of stories around ghosts, whether it's China, Taipei, you know, Japan, what have Korea, everyone has ghost stories and everyone has a hungry ghost story and can we talk about the title because i honestly when i saw it i was like i need to read this book because i'm pretty sure there's a connection here and i really need to know what's going on and i think i'm right yeah yeah like olden hinduism um they they used to call the hungry ghost fritters Mm -hmm. and i actually well not i didn't first hear about it here but it first like entered, I would say my real life when my grandmother passed away, and we were doing the the funeral. And usually, you know, Hindu funerals last a, a long time. Same thing like wedding. And you know, there's there's several days of it. And the the holy man called a pundit came, and he wanted certain family members to eat these rice balls. When she she was um, in her 80s, and a lot of her beliefs were kind of lost onto onto us, but. Um, I suppose the, the the family and my grandfather wanted this for her, like basically the cold works, uh, because usually like when let's say um, when a family member passed, like a younger one, you don't usually hear about this. So he wanted us to to, to eat these rice balls, and and we were like, well, you know, I just wanted to explain like why, why is this? I say like basically, you know, this is to and you, you offer it as well. Because upon that, upon this 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 transition, there's this this intense hunger, this intense yearning, almost as if you you wish to to come back to life. There's this kind of right. kind of large desire because so much has been spilled out of you. Now you have this right. great appetite, but upon that, you know your your throat has gotten so thin and your mouth has gotten so small. Having out the having these these rice balls also um, provides company. For for the the one who has fallen, the the, the lost one, and prevents them from I I, I would say associating with bad ghosts. I, I guess when he was speaking, I wanted to introduce this element into into the book. I think just this the general idea of 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 desiring something so badly, but having no way to attain this thing. It kind of summed up. A lot of the the characters in the book, 
yeah. where there's simply no way or so, so like it's, it is so rare for them to mm. break through and to actually metaphorically feed themselves and to satiate that appetite that they've basically just gotten accustomed to the hunger and, and, and to live with it. There are some that fight it, but at the end, you wonder if it's even worth fighting it. And that's kind of the premise of the title. Yeah, I think the ones who are fighting it too learn quickly that they might have chosen differently. Mm -hmm. But I'd also heard that the original working title was Devotion. And I have to say, Hungry Ghost, really, for what this book is and what you're doing and who these people are, the title is fat. It just fits so perfectly. It rains a lot during the course well, that, of this that's novel, a you know, it just, we were in between the two. no, no, you chose the right to, no, you chose the right title. I'm so excited about this, but also just this idea that there's no relief. There's no relief from the rain. There's no relief from hunger. Mm. There's no, you know, when things go wrong and you have to go to the hospital, there's a very tiny, tiny set of folks who can help you. And even then their resources are stretched you really have created this sort of claustrophobic moody i keep coming back to this it's very gothic -y, world where everyone's kind of just a couple of steps away from disaster and yet there are still moments of joy there are still moments of genuine love and compassion and you know hans hans learns a lot let's put it this way hans learns a lot in this book but he's not a bad guy. No one in this book is like a twirling the mustache kind of villain. It's just everyone's trying to figure out how to survive. Did you know that this is where the narrative was going? I mean, we know where you started. I I did. Okay. Um, I, I was coming back to those teachers that um, would wear these jackets. And I guess a part that I didn't mention was that they would excessively flog their students and they would of course be the villains in those students stories because that's the way that they the only way that they thought they would be respected it was like the very quick shortcut way that had a very had very bad repercussions in the end i would think i was thinking about the mindset of that as like if you you want this this disrespect you want respect now but you're not thinking any long term and I, there's a there's a saying that someone, you know, uttered to me, which was, in you know, Trinidad and Tobago was, was really never meant to be a civilization when what? all these people came together. It was never really meant to be a civilization when the British brought all these people here. All these different faiths and ethnicities, they were never meant to get along. So by the time they, were, they, they left, it wasn't really a, a, a big concern if we got along or not. Right. Okay. Um, those who converted to Presbyterianism, those who stayed in Hinduism, those who, who came as Muslims, those who stayed to the, the older Orisha and Baha'i faiths, like we were never meant to do that. And I, I was thinking of that. I wanted to, to make the characters into almost their own villains. There's there's well, yeah, there's the there's the, the police in there. But um, the, even that too is as I call back to gain and respect and things like that if you think back to the teachers i was talking about it is like a looming cloud over them yeah. that they have made themselves they have they have formed this uh, again like like each one is a performance and really the the 
only one, either that you're keeping the others down or you're, you're, you're sucking up to them, you know? And one of the only characters who was true to themselves was Krishna. So mm-hmm. he was kind of like the standout in there. And, well, his, his clan, like the twins and mm-hmm. so on, because he was the only one that sort of accepted himself and was infuriated that nobody else would, would fight to claim or, or to, to be proud of this, this image that he was. Right. That was sort of the mindset. So in terms of the characters, yes, there's no real villains in there. All of the the conflict really comes from within these characters, and I guess whatever ancestral pain that mm-hmm. would they would have inherited. You teach biology to teenagers. I think you yes. call it secondary school there. We would call it high school, junior high, and high school yes. here. But partially because you couldn't study literature at college yeah, because yeah. it wasn't offered at your school. I did try to get in, like I did try to inveigle myself into the program, but it, it didn't work. <laughs> but I'm kind of curious how your day life, right? Your teaching and your students and all of those interactions, I, there's somehow that has to influence what you're doing on the page, right? Or what you're doing on the page somehow, like, where's this, is there separation? Like, how does that work for you? Because they are two very different disciplines. The aunt, the aunt. Um, okay. in, in a sense, like if I would, a lot of my love for language comes from actually reading scientific literature. Okay. You might, you might see a few words actually spill across it, mm-hmm. <laughs> into it like Noctiluce and Flabellate and all these things mm-hmm. are like biological mm-hmm. words that I think are actually quite beautiful. So, and they, they are actually quite specific. And usually like when, like if I'm with reading The Origin of Species by Darwin or Silent Spring by Rachel Castle, like all these things that were meant to be not just, let's say, like journalistic work, but they were meant to not just capture ideas, but also be influential. So there, there is a sense of writing or, or like translating all these scientific ideas to be interesting. You have to be interested to be a science teacher because some of these ideas are quite complex. I did mention I wrote young adult literature before this, and usually young characters, and I do take traits from from some students that, you know, I encounter. Right, right. That is based entirely on their traits. It has helped in a way. Um, it also has helped me separate what I would say is, you know, my uh, university degree, work life or whatever. And, um, and what would have been like a parallel writing career. I was able to separate it like that. Of course, I don't get the time now to, to teach full time, I do tutor. So I still keep in, you know, I still work with, with right. teenagers and so on. But. but also teenagers are fun. I mean, they just, they can raise an eyebrow and just be like, okay, old people. <laughs> like, we're taking the world in a new direction. And Krishna is that kid in this, in Hungry yeah. Ghost. Krishna is absolutely that kid just raising an eyebrow at everyone going, really? Like, we can do this differently. We don't have to do it this way. And all of the adults are still kind of... I don't want to say they're floundering. They're not floundering. They're just doing the best they can under very extreme circumstances. They're doing the tools that they're equipped with. Right. That they think that they're equipped with, yeah. It's the same with Lata. Mm-hmm. She has a very, what what I would say, it, it, like the, the idea of, let's say, like women's rights probably didn't yeah. exist. Yeah. <laughs> it didn't come to mind. Oh, no. And no. She, That's very she, clear. Yeah. She embodies that to, to, to a degree. Um, 
she does know what she has to survive, but she knows that she's she's not going to take any nonsense from anybody. And that usually that was a, that would have been a very very novel idea for the woman back then. So uh, yeah, I guess like me using youth and ideas from um, youth and rebellion um, to bring forth what we would call modern ideas now into, yeah. into that frame. You were writing this during lockdown, though, right? Yeah. Do I have that? So the timeline is right. So here you are. You've got a day job. Then you're writing, 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 writing. When did you know? Because you also mentioned that you weren't sure it was ever going to get published. But when did you know you had a story that you wanted to say send on to your agent? I mean, the book sold for quite a lot of money in the UK. I mean, there's been a lot of buzz around this novel for quite some time now. And when did you let it go? When did you say, okay, someone else can look at this? I guess it's kind of a, a funny story, actually. Um, when I signed with my agent, I told him I had a novel. I didn't. But I, you know, I just wanted to, <laughs> to sign. Okay. So I wrote 10,000 words <laughs> really quickly and sent us. This is the beginning of the novel. Mm-hmm. And he thought it was good. So I didn't have a novel. So I had that kind mm-hmm. of imposter syndrome thing. Right. looming over me i did finish a version of this okay. um, before it was actually a horror story version of it where marley was kind of like a chimera like creature yeah and the house okay. was kind of like absorbing you know people from the barracks and he said you know good for this draft um let's focus on on marley and these people and and you know let's let's see what we could do so I actually let it hang for a few months and then lockdown happened. And all of a sudden, I, you know, you couldn't go out. I really, really enjoyed interaction with my sons, like, like live interaction. And I found myself almost now a bit depressed <laughs> and almost lacking purpose. And I said, I, I want to start, I want to restart this, this project. And I'm just going to write it like straight. I'm going to like redo it from scratch and it would mostly be done at nights and the weekends to be honest at, at at no point really maybe approaching the end when I sent him um the, the the first half of the manuscript and he really really he really loved it that was when I thought okay maybe we have something here <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and um then he worked really really hard <laughs> which put me on this like we basically played a tennis match with this manuscript mm-hmm. before he sent it out. And at the time, I was kind of getting the hint that he maybe thought he could do something really big with this. Right, right. And then he said, well, you know, he sent it out and he's usually, he gives a kind of aura of pessimism. He's like, we'll probably hear back, hear back <laughs> in a month. And three days later, you know, we got an offer from Bloomsbury. And then a few days later, we got offers from um, three other publishing houses and my mind was blown honestly I was expecting some gas money <laughs> this is like just to pay for car repairs or something like that so I didn't think it would actually change the whole trajectory of my career so that was nice mm-hmm. to, <laughs> to, to experience especially all of this happening over zoom and email and right, right. I get to stay in my house in Trinidad and reap the benefits but at the same time it's kind of nice to know that you've got a lot of reach you know there you are east of venezuela and a lot of people are about to meet 
your characters and sit in your world. And I have to say, I get the horror thing. I totally understand why you did that original draft the way you did. But I'm personally, as a reader, really excited that this is the book that we got. I think, you know, it's easy sometimes to slip in. And horror is the perfect metaphor for a lot of things right now. There's enough horror in this book without Marley having to be a chimera or without workers what in the barracks it, yeah. having to, you know, I just, and I, to but I can totally see that version working too. But this for me, yeah, you kind of made my heart hurt while I was reading this book. And for all the right reasons and all of the, you know, you're hoping and that people will figure their things out, but sometimes they don't. Do you miss this book? Do you miss being in the thick of this world? I do. And I, do, I don't think I will revisit it. <laughs> um, oh, I can see uh, that. I, I no, no, no. The, the 1940s <laughs> were, I do. It, it, it was a lot of work mm -hmm. to build mm -hmm. this world. I, I would have seen from the ground up because it's not like I would have been alive at the yeah. time. And the number of people who would have been alive at the time um, are quite limited. Right. No, at least who would have actually like not been let's say babies at the time. Oh, yeah. I, I was really, really grateful to get um, several first-hand accounts of mm -hmm. what it was at the time. And to use that to, to, to weave, as I said, several notions that right. I believe is part of the Trinidadian mm -hmm. cultural tapestry, at least mm -hmm. what resonates with our culture today. And almost as if um, origins for some of the issues um, that we have today. So it it was nice visiting there. It was a bit stressful because I know that there's going to be some Caribbean historian be like, that didn't happen. And, you know, but if, if it's like that, there's, I did it for the drama. I did it for the, the enjoyment. And yeah, I didn't seek out like 100% verisimilitude and, 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 and mm. historical accuracy, but I hopefully captured what we would say is the mood of the time. Yes, yeah. I would say I was very clearly in a world that I had not previously experienced. I didn't want to let the characters go. Even the ones that annoyed me a little bit, and I think you know who I'm talking about. There are a couple where I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> I get why you're here, and yes, we need you, and oh, I just don't like you. <laughs> Marley and Shweta both. I was not ready to let go of either. I mean, and and Hans obviously has a huge piece of the story. And Krishna, I really like that kid a lot too. But I wasn't ready to let those women go because I think under the circumstances, like their lives were just so prescribed by things that were beyond their control. And in some ways, Marley actually found a way to scrabble out of what could have been a really unpleasant world for yeah. her. And I have to give her props. I, ha I, like, I just have to give her a little bit of credit for being able to not live the life that other people expected her to live. And it's wild who these women are and what they're doing. And there are a couple of scenes where they get into it with each other. And it's, it's great. Yeah, I, I think she's a character. I'm, I'm really excited to see what people think about um, how many people would love her, hate her, or both. That, that, that'll be interesting to see in the next couple of weeks or so. Yeah, I'm really curious, too. I think there are going to be a lot of people who really, really hate her and a lot of people who have some mixed feelings. I don't know who's going to openly admit to really liking her. <laughs> and I don't think I'm giving anything away <laughs> by saying that, but she is complicated. She's yeah. very, she's complicated. And I mean, I do. I like her. I think she's a great character. And um, but there are moments where I was like, oh, 
Oh, you said that out. Oh, you did say that out loud. Okay. There's one exchange with Shweta particularly where it's like, oh, you're just going straight for the horrible thing. Okay, great. And by horrible thing, I mean the thing that's going to hurt Shweta the most. That said, are you working on anything new? Yeah, I am. Um, working on another novel and is set in the 90s, which is a lot easier to write about. Yes, I can imagine. (laughs) (laughs) I can imagine. Where do you feel like you are in the process on that? Do you feel like it's It's, um, soonish or is it like a while down the road? It's, I, it's, it's taken a hiatus because (laughs) of, um, you know, all the, all the, all the press stuff. Right. It's, It's difficult to do the two, but, um. I'm hoping to finish a draft within the, the the next few months, and hopefully we can do you know a final version. Mm-hmm. Hopefully by near the end of the year, we could send stuff out and get you know some momentum going. That sounds very very excellent, yeah. Kevin. This was so great. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I can't wait for the next novel. The '90s, yeah, they weren't that long ago, but I do want to point out that they were long enough ago. Anyway, Hungry Ghost is out now. It is gothic-y. It is gorgeous. If you loved Abdul Razak Gurna's Afterlives, this book sits firmly in that sort of piece of the world literature. So feel free to pick up both. But Hungry Ghost is out now. It's really great. And Kevin, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for having me um, on this podcast. It's been a pleasure to talk about Hungry Ghost with you. Hello, readers. It's time for another TBR Top Off. We're going to recommend a couple of books to pick up when you stop in for your copy of Hungry Ghosts. I'm Mark. I'm at my home store at Cincinnati, Ohio, and I'm joined by my book buddy, Jamie. Hello. Hi, Mark. I am at my home store in Leawood, Kansas. Fantastic. Enjoying that chilly weather. Kind of over it. Well, we'll warm everybody up with some wonderful books. I'm going to go ahead and jump right in. I was thinking about sort of historical, sweeping, epic kind of stories that have a little change of pace when it comes to the usual. And I fell back on one of my very favorite authors who I have talked about this on the pod before. That is David Mitchell. And he wrote a stunner called The Thousand Autumns of Jakob de Zitt. This is one of my favorite books of all time. You follow a young and very eager Dutchman named Jakob in uh, the late 1700s. He is wonderfully naive, uh, but very smart and really wants to be a good person. And all of that has led to his new stint as a bookkeeper at a Dutch port on the shores of Nagasaki, Japan. There he meets and falls for a quietly bold midwife who I love so very much. Uh, He becomes embroiled in a system that is riddled with corruption, and he experiences adventures in ways that his very delicate 1700s European self could never imagine. I, I love, love, love this book. It has political intrigue. It has a faded love story. It has a mythical and slightly terrifying subplot. And most importantly, it has a command of language that truly sings. I love all of his books. Uh, You will find a little bit of that David Mitchell multiverse peppered in. Uh, So if you've read any of his books prior, that will be some nice treats for you to find. But if you're just looking for a really interesting epic, uh, this is a great place to jump into. So that is The Thousand Autumns of Jakob de Zutt. Jamie, what do you have for us? 
Jay, you know, David Mitchell is uh, is hard to top sometimes. I think I'm also a big fan. <laughs> All right, uh, but as I was thinking about Hungry Ghosts, um, I was thinking about the just the beautiful really prize-worthy writing that's in that book. You kind of mentioned that. You have this beautiful language sort of set against this backdrop of violence and poverty. And that sort of reminded me of Toni Morrison, um, who has that same skill of telling these kind of terrible stories beautifully. I'm going to talk today about Sula, which is was her second novel. And believe it or not, it was published 50 years ago. This is the 50th anniversary year of Sula. And it is the story of a white town called Medallion, Ohio, and a Black community that has formed on the hill above the town, uh, is referred to as the bottom, or it calls itself the bottom. And it follows two girls who are fierce friends, uh, but who come from two very, very different families. Nell has a really strict and very traditional home, and Sula is the granddaughter of a prostitute and is raised by her mother, who herself had a very complicated childhood. And so Sula seeks Nell out, this good girl Nell out, as a friend to sort of spite her mother. But they soon form this really intense um, childhood friendship, which is ripped apart when there's a, a tragic accident. And over the years, as they keep the secret of that accident, it's very devastating to their relationship. And so Toni Morrison follows their uh, really wildly diverging lives after this moment. Um, so, you know, they're very intensely together and then they grow apart and Nell becomes married, focuses on her traditional role as a wife and a mother. Sula just rejects all of that, and she leaves uh, for years, and she goes to college. She has affairs. She can't settle down. She's gone for 10 years, and when she comes back, the community shuns her, and they literally call her evil, and they blame her for their misfortunes, and they celebrate her failures. There's a lot of twisty, turny, tense kind of plot as these two women and circle each other, these good and evil forces circle each other. They each kind of take on the role that they've been assigned. So Nell is ostensibly good and Sula is ostensibly the evil temptress. And meanwhile, in the background, there's this looming gentrification of the bottom. They're going to turn it into a golf course for the town of Medallion. Uh, and there's a there's a drama there uh, of class and race divisions that's going on um, behind all the action with these two women. Toni Morrison is never just about the plot, right? Um, she doesn't just construct a plot. The joy in reading her stories are pulling apart these beautifully constructed sentences and looking for the central theme that kind of lays behind them. And here it's really just about these people, these poor people who've suffered tremendously, and they use the idea of good and evil to define themselves and then they live their lives according to those definitions when really we know the truth is a lot more ambiguous than that. Like for Hungry Ghosts, I think this is definitely for readers who are up for an emotional challenge, <laughs> uh, who love beautiful sentences, and I think it sort of will prime them for later, even more challenging Toni Morrison books. Um, there's a lot more rewarding to come uh, if you start there. Yeah. Such a good pick. I can't believe it's been 50 years for Sula. Ugh, what a feat. And it's in your right, it is a great toe dip book. Uh, if you have never experienced her writing before, it's a beautiful place to start. All of her books are incredible, but that's a really great one to chew on if you really want to get a good scope of what you'll be in for. So nice choice. 
Well, that is all we have for today. Thanks so much for tuning in to Poured Over. Please make sure to give us a rating and subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can also follow us on our socials at Barnes & Noble. Pretty simple. I'm Mark. You can follow my home store at BN Westchester. And I'm Jamie. You can follow my home store at BN Leewood KS. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Happy reading. Enjoy the day. Bye. Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.